Welcome back to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. I'm Sarah Perlman, an emergency medicine intern at Cooper University Hospital and this episode's producer. Today we are talking about a very important topic, pneumonia. Pneumonia is the leading cause of mortality for children under the age of five in the world. In this episode, we'll go through the basics, but we'll also take a deeper dive into recent research on biomarkers and the latest tips for ED management. As always, our host, Dr. Bob Belfer, attending physician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and professor of pediatrics at the Perlman School of Medicine, will lead us through our discussion. We're lucky enough to be sitting down with Dr. Todd Florin. He is an associate professor of pediatrics in the Division of Pediatric Emergency Medicine at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine and director of research in emergency medicine at Lurie Children's Hospital. He's nationally recognized for his work in respiratory infectious diseases, and he's been awarded multiple research grants from the NIH. Currently, he's working on developing risk stratification tools and investigate biomarkers that can improve outcomes in children with pneumonia. Thank you, Sarah, for that introduction. And Todd, welcome to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Great to have you on. Thanks, Bob. And thanks, Sarah, for that great introduction. Uh, It's really great to be here. So now, Todd, everyone knows about uh, your title, your uh, professional title, your grants. Why don't you tell some of our listeners, you have a lot of accomplishments over the years. What professional accomplishment are you most proud of, Todd? Gosh, I, I feel very fortunate to have had a great career so far, um, and a lot of great things have happened uh, throughout the course of, the, of my career. But I think the thing that I'm most proud of was actually when one of my mentees, my research mentees, Teresa Fry, who's now faculty at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, when she actually won the Ken Graff Young Investigator Award from the American Academy of Pediatrics Section on Emergency Medicine, this was for a randomized trial of intranasal fentanyl versus intranasal ketamine for uh, extremity pain in kids who present to the emergency department with extremity fractures. And she did such an outstanding job. It was a pleasure to be her mentor for that. Not only did she win the Ken Graff Award, but that ended up as a really high-impact publication in JAMA Pediatrics. And I think, you know, those are the proudest moments when people that you're collaborating with and mentoring succeed uh, in impactful work. So I think that would be one of those really impactful moments for me. Great, Todd. It's great to hear. And again, we know many people know that you are a stellar mentor and also a stellar researcher. And what we're going to do as we talk pediatric pneumonia in a few minutes is talk about many of the articles that you have authored or co-authored over the last few years, which are taking the treatment and diagnosis of pneumonia to a new level. But before we get to pneumonia, Todd, outside of pneumonia, you're an ER doctor. What's your favorite diagnosis or favorite disease that you see? Or, make, or take care of in the ED? Well, you know, Bob, we're all a little bit uh, ADD, and we love a lot of things. That's why we do emergency medicine. But I have to say one of the most satisfying conditions to take care of is DKA. These kids come in incredibly sick, and you have the ability to recognize their illness, their critical illness quickly, and make adjustments and watch them improve in front of your eyes. What's better than that? to be able to improve care, uh, you know, within the course of an ED stay. So I would say if I had to pick one of the many things that I love to care for, DKA is really cool. Great. Uh, I agree with that. And I'm sure uh, many of our listeners also do that too. Uh, All right, Todd, let's jump into pediatric pneumonia. I like to give a little bit of a background of uh, pneumonia, of every topic that we discuss uh, before getting into the banter. So let me give you this background. This is from the UNICEF website. 
a child dies of pneumonia every 39 seconds. Pneumonia kills more children than any other infectious disease, claiming the lives of over 800,000 children under five years old every year. Now, it's a little bit skewed, okay? The majority of these children live in South Asia, West Africa, and Central Africa. And if you look at the data, the majority of these children who die from pneumonia never receive healthcare services. And obviously, they never get any treatment. Well, many of our listeners, in the next few months, we're going to have some global health experts on the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast talking about diseases in some of these countries. But today, Todd, we're going to focus on the United States and other developed countries. And I think we can agree the opposite is true in those countries. What I mean by that, the diagnosis of pneumonia is overtreated. Testing, unnecessary testing, is a problem. Now, there are numerous evidence-based medicine articles in the literature. As I mentioned before, many of them authored or co-authored by you. And I want to start with an article from Pediatrics in 2017, Todd. Reliability of Examination Findings in Suspected Community-Acquired Pneumonia. What did you find? What exam findings are helpful in making the diagnosis of pneumonia? Bob, this was, this was a really interesting study where we looked at kids who presented to the emergency department at Cincinnati Children's Hospital who presented with suspected pneumonia. And we had two ED-attending physicians perform a physical exam within 20 to 30 minutes of each other with no treatments in between. And we wanted to understand how well are we at agreeing with each other in terms of the clinical diagnosis of pneumonia, since oftentimes this diagnosis is clinically made. We studied 20 physical examination findings. And interestingly enough, of those 20, only three had acceptable interrater reliability. Those three are wheezing, retractions, and respiratory rate. Interestingly, findings that we all commonly use to make this diagnosis, such as decreased breath sounds or crackles, actually had lower interrater reliability than those top three, which leaves us to really question if you, Bob, and I are seeing the same patient, would we both diagnose that patient with pneumonia based on these clinical findings alone? And I think the, the answer in some cases may be yes, but in some cases may be no. Okay, so that, that's a, a great start, Todd, because now you're saying that the physical exam, okay, the interrater reliability is very poor. So let me jump to the other end of the spectrum, and we're going to talk a lot about this later. So we know both in the ER and outpatient setting, chest x-rays are gotten frequently, okay? Probably too frequently, and we'll talk about some of those studies. Is the chest x-ray then the gold standard to make the diagnosis of pneumonia? Well, Bob, certainly in countries like the United States, chest x-ray has become the reference standard for many, many years, many, many decades. I think the challenge is, is that the chest x-ray is a bronze standard, if that, at best. And the reason that it is such a fair reference standard is that the interrater reliability of a chest x-ray is huge across radiologists, across pediatric emergency medicine physicians, across general emergency med medicine physicians, in addition to the fact that oftentimes nonspecific findings on chest x-ray get mistaken for pneumonia. And so kids are treated as a result of these nonspecific findings, such as interstitial infiltrates, um, you know, perihilar infiltrates. Now, 
I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater for chest x-ray. Chest x-ray does have some utility. There was a great study out of Boston Children's two years ago by Susan Lipset, Mark Newman, and colleagues that actually found that the negative predictive value of chest x-ray is actually quite high. So if you have a chest x-ray and there is no pneumonia on there, you can be very reassured that that child is highly unlikely to develop pneumonia and can feel comfortable not treating that child. The other thing that I will say about chest x-ray is it really is a balance. So clinical exam is not great. Chest x-ray is also not great, though is better than physical exam. And ultimately, in my mind, it's a value judgment. It's a trade-off between whether you want to give more antibiotics and use fewer radiographs or whether you want to use more radiographs and fewer antibiotics based off of that high negative predictive value. So from, from that perspective, Bob, I think it all relates to setting and accessibility and what your pretest probability is for pneumonia. The one other thing that I would add, Bob, is that really where chest x-ray is most useful is in the intermediate group when the diagnosis is uncertain. If you believe clinically that a child has a very high likelihood of pneumonia, they've got some mild hypoxia, they've got work of breathing, they have focal rawls, even though those findings in and of themselves are not uh, highly sensitive or specific, you could still say that there's a high enough pretest probability that you should just treat that child, provided that you're not suspecting that something else is going on. Similarly, if they don't have those things and you really don't think the kid has pneumonia, there's no utility to chest x-ray in those kids. It's really that middle group where the chest x-ray can help you to make a decision around antibiotic use. Great. All right. We're going to talk a lot more about antibiotic use, especially, Todd, in the outpatient setting. But let's go back a few years. New England Journal of Medicine, 2015. Study which had a mnemonic called EPIC, looking at the etiology of pneumonia in children who were hospitalized. Okay. So again, this sort of sets the framework or gives the foundation. Viruses accounted for greater than 70% of cases. Okay. So comment, again, I'm sure you're familiar with that study, Todd. Uh, you talked a little bit about antibiotics. Uh, again, we're focusing on the inpatient setting, but tell us maybe if that study was done in the outpatient setting, you know, are viruses still 70%? Are they higher, lower? And what are some of the bacterial causes, again, from the EPIC study in hospitalized patients, children with community-acquired pneumonia? This is a, a treasure trove of information that we're talking about. I mean, the holy grail for pneumonia researchers is differentiating viral from bacterial infection and understanding etiology. The CDC EPIC study is the most comprehensive study of pneumonia etiology in the contemporary times in the United States. And what the study did was it three U.S. hospitals did comprehensive culture-based and molecular testing of multiple specimen types to try to get at the root causes of pneumonia in children requiring hospitalization. And as you said, Bob, it's really important to remember that the EPIC study was done in hospitalized children, and we may not be able to extrapolate the data altogether to the outpatient setting. So wh what that study found was when you did comprehensive PCR, molecular testing and culture, was that the vast majority of detected pathogens were viruses with RSV and rhinovirus leading the way, and metanumovirus and adenovirus coming in a close third and fourth, followed by influenza and parainfluenza. And what is also notable about this study is that those viral causes were most notable in 
young kids. So when you looked at children under two years of age, 70 to 75% of the pathogens detected were viruses. Again, with RSV leading the way. And as children get move into adolescence, the, that viral detection goes down, bacterial detection goes up slightly, but actually the number of patients without a pathogen detected goes up significantly as children grow older. And that brings up a, a key point with all of these etiological studies, no matter how good they are, which is the ability to detect viruses using our current technology is really limited. And so while the incidence of streptococcus pneumoniae or pneumococcus increased as age increased, we know that we cannot rely on detection of pneumococcus in the nasopharynx because it's a colonizer as, as a means of detecting infection. And it's very hard to find pneumococcus in the blood. We can talk about blood cultures a little later if you'd like. Mycoplasma pneumoniae or atypical pneumonia, that becomes a more important pathogen as kids grow older, particularly after five. And, and, and there was definitely increased detection in the older kids in mycoplasma. But the challenge with the EPIC study is that just because it wasn't detected does not mean that it was not there. So what we're finding in the lungs or what we're not finding in the blood doesn't mean that that was what was present or not present in the lung parenchyma and in the alveoli. Great, Todd. That's an excellent explanation and com commentary on the EPIC study. Let me throw out one more question. Uh, a lot of people, maybe this is folklore, passed on. Wheezing. Wheezing is viral pneumonia, not bacterial. Uh, what do the numbers say? This is my one of my favorite things to talk about because it's it's the true myth busters of pneumonia. So wheezing, people have said that, that it's more indicative of viral pneumonia, and we've all learned in medical school that wheezing is associated with atypical pneumonia. You see that you see that older kid who's wheezing for the first time, and it makes you think about atypical pathogens. Well, when you look at two well done meta analyses, one by the Cochrane Collaborative and one that was published by Cuddy and colleagues in clinical infectious diseases in 2019, I believe, wheezing was actually negatively associated with atypical pathogens and the detection of mycoplasma. So wheezing is not as indicative of atypical infection as we might think. And the clinical features that are more indicative are some of the things that we think about traditionally, insidious onset, chest pain, headache, malaise, you know, in a child who's school-aged or adolescent. But even those factors are sometimes unreliable and not classic for mycoplasma pneumoniae. In terms of viral pneumonia, it's anybody's ballgame in terms of how viral pneumonia presents. And I think that we really cannot rely on wheezing as a specific or sensitive finding for viral pneumonia. Great, Todd. We, uh, we're going to talk a lot about the more common outpatient community-acquired pneumonia in a second. But we're ER doctors. We like pathology. We like sick kids. And I think the focus of your work and your publications over the last year or so, and I think your future research, has to do with can we differentiate the child who is going to have a severe outcome or have severe pneumonia from that child who has moderate or mild pneumonia? There was a study you published in Pediatrics last year, Biomarkers and Disease Severity in Children with Community-Acquired Pneumonia. Biomarkers frequently obtained, CBCs, CRP, procalcitonin. What can you tell us about the value of those tests in helping us, the clinicians, to determine if the child has or is going to develop 
severe pneumonia? This is a great question and obviously one that I'm very passionate about because I do believe that without biomarkers, we are not going to come to the answer to this question in terms of risk stratification. I think that we're going to need some form of biomarkers to ultimately be able to answer this question. However, I think the jury is still out about what biomarker or likely combination of biomarkers that might be. That study that we published in pediatrics looked, as you said, Bob, at CBC, so white blood cell count, ANC, in addition to C-reactive protein and procalcitonin. And we looked at this in over 500 kids who presented to the emergency department with suspected pneumonia. And what we found was that none of those markers was helpful at differentiating mild from moderate pneumonia. So by those definitions, I mean mild, meaning you're well enough to go home and did not return requiring hospitalization subsequently, and moderate, meaning you were admitted, but you didn't meet key criteria for severe pneumonia, which included prolonged time in the ICU, chest drainage for empyema, non-invasive or invasive positive pressure or mechanical ventilation, ECMO, and death. And so really at these lower levels of severity, these markers seem to not be helpful at all. Where they really, where we started to see some signal was differentiating moderate from severe disease, the kids who would go on. And I should tell you, Bob, that none of these patients had these outcomes at the time that these biomarkers were measured. So this was about prognosticating what was to happen in the future, not about, I can see in my ER if a child requires non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. What I care about is, does that child need it 12 hours, 16 hours, 24 hours from now? And we found that in that situation, procalcitonin appeared to be more helpful at differentiating moderate from severe disease than any of the other biomarkers. And I think what's important here, Bob, is a little bit more myth-busting. Everyone loves their CBCs, but the CBC in our study was essentially useless at being able to risk stratify children with pneumonia, in addition to literature that others have published, which shows that the degree of white blood cell count elevation cannot be used to accurately differentiate bacterial from viral etiology. And so that's not to say that we should never get a CBC. I think in the very severe kids where you're concerned about other complications, we should be thinking about a CBC, but it should not be a routine test that we obtain in the emergency department certainly not for moderate or mild pneumonia. All right. And Todd, that comment, procalcitonin. In our past podcast, we talked infant fever with two experts. Procalcitonin keeps moving up on that list. We talked sepsis with experts. Again, procalcitonin, not saying it's the biomarker of the day, but it keeps moving up, uh, up the list. I think, you know what, you would not be wrong to call it the biomarker of the day. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of chatter about PCT, procalcitonin. I, I do want to make a comment about, about procalcitonin and pneumonia, though, that I think is really important. And I think, it's, I think there's more data coming out, including work that we're doing, which is the data from that CDC EPIC study that was published in 2015. There was another paper that was published by Chris Stockman and, and his EPIC colleagues in the Journal of Pediatric Infectious Disease Society that found that at very low levels, less than 0.25 nanograms per milliliter, that at very low levels, rates of detection of typical bacteria were extremely low. 
with negative predictive values greater than 96%. There have been 26 randomized trials to date in adults that have looked at procalcitonin-guided algorithms for antibiotic decision-making in adults with lower respiratory tract infections. And what these studies have shown is that when PCT guidance is used, you can decrease your rates of antibiotic initiation, and for inpatients, you can decrease your duration of antibiotic therapy by looking at procalcitonin serially in inpatients. And, you know, there's now three studies that are out there uh, in children that also suggest similar results. And I'm very excited for a pilot study that is funded by NHLBI that I am collaborating with the PCAR network on. We are, do- we are running a pilot study this year looking at randomized trial of amoxicillin versus placebo in low-risk outpatient children with very low procalcitonin values. And so we will do this pilot study at three sites through PCARN. And then hopefully, if if our results are promising and we can show feasibility, our hopes is to then do a large-scale definitive randomized placebo-controlled trial in low-risk kids with pneumonia who also have a low procalcitonin. Todd, for the professionals listening to this podcast, that is awesome news. We look forward to the research in the next year or two. I may get a group of 50 parents on the next podcast for you to justify them why uh, you're not treating their child who you're sending home from the ER with pneumonia without any antibiotics. But again, another day, another discussion. Todd, we have trainees listening to this podcast. We have doctors with over 20 to 30 years of experience listening today. Clinical Gestalt, you published about this in pediatrics this past year. I don't like tests. I don't like x-rays. I like my stethoscope. I like my history and physical exam abilities. I have a gut feeling that this child's pneumonia is going to get worse. Tell us what you found regarding the predictive value of clinical gestalt how it, and how it relates to community-acquired pneumonia. Well, Bob, the good news is, is I think that given your years of experience, you fall into a, into a good range. I've known you since I was a, a fellow at CHOP, and so um, I know you've been practicing a long time and have a lot of experience, and actually our study found that clinicians who have more experience absolutely do better at predicting severe complications, uh, the development of severe complications of pneumonia compared with less experienced clinicians. Um, So experience does matter. I I will start with that. Now, on the other side of this, we asked ED clinicians at the time that they were caring for kids in the ED, after they had all data available to them, to predict the risk that that child would go on to develop a severe complication of pneumonia. And what we found su- shocked and surprised us because we all thought we all think that we are astute clinicians um, in the ED with you know using clinical gestalt, but what we found was that we had fair to average ability to discriminate those kids who would go on to develop severe complications from those kids that would not. And perhaps most surprising to us was that of the children that did go on to develop severe complications, sixty percent of those children were initially ranked by the ED clinician as having a predicted risk of less than 10% of going on to develop those complications. That was an eye-opener for me. And really, it's this sort of data and this sort of clinical conundrum that drives me every day to attack this problem. Because it's not that we as clinicians are poor clinicians. It's not that we do a bad job. It's not that we come to work you know, not wanting to do the best that we possibly can, but we are human beings. And pneumonia is a heterogeneous disease process. 
So we need these objective evidence-based tools to complement, not replace, but complement our clinical judgment when it comes to risk stratification, because none of us wants to be in the position of sending a child home who's going to go home and uh, going to decompensate, nor do we want to admit a child to the hospital if they don't need to be there. Right. Todd, perfect. And this leads to, let's close the loop on this discussion that we've been having over the last few minutes. An article published in Clinical Infectious Disease, you were the lead author. You developed an internally validated or predictive model to risk stratify children with suspected community-acquired pneumonia. Again, your primary outcome was disease severity. This was published last year. Tell us what those markers are, and is this externally validated yet? Can we use it outside of the Chicago area? So that is a great question. This was this study I'm really excited about. You talk about professional accomplishments to be proud of. This was the this was really the driver of my um, K23 Career Development Award from NIAID. This was four years of you know sweat and tears enrolling more than 1,140 children who presented to the Cincinnati Children's Emergency Department with suspected pneumonia. I have to I have to shout out here to the team of research professionals at Cincinnati Children's that did an outstanding job enrolling all of these kids with pneumonia. Now, what I will tell you is we looked at 1142 kids and we recorded a whole host of predictors before they developed their outcomes, so at the time of the ED visit. And then we did um some uh, regression modeling and found that there were seven factors in our final model that included elevated respiratory rate, decreased systolic blood pressure, impaired oxygenation, presence of retractions, prolonged capillary refill, the presence of atelectasis or definitive pneumonia on chest radiograph, and the presence of pleural effusion on a chest radiograph. Those seven factors had an optimism corrected C index or, or area under the curve of 0.81, and that was after an internal, you know, bootstrap validation, which is is um, pretty for a disease like pneumonia is, is a pretty impressive uh, ability to discriminate those children who would go to de- on to develop either moderate or severe pneumonia. We're cautiously optimistic with this because this was only at a single center, and a critical part of any clinical prediction rule development is external validation. So we actually have a proposal in. Um, as we speak to the NIH to externally valid, you know, to do a multi-center um, derivation and validation of this work and are super excited. Hopefully, fingers crossed, it gets funded. And then I think what, what we hope is that we will be able to develop a risk prediction tool that clinicians can use at the bedside to understand what a, pa- a patient's individual risk of developing moderate or severe disease will be. And I think that will be a huge step forward for us as clinicians. Wow, Todd. Uh, I'm just going to right now invite you back next year. We have not had a speaker come back twice, but uh, you have an open invitation once these studies are ongoing and you have some preliminary data. Let me pivot, Todd. Let's talk about outpatient treatment of pneumonia. You were part of a study published in Pediatrics in 2020 titled Antibiotic Use and Outcomes in children in the emergency department who were discharged with suspected pneumonia. And let me read the conclusion and then have you comment. Among children with suspected community-acquired pneumonia, the outcomes were not statistically different between those who did and did not receive an antibiotic prescription. 
the way I read that, Todd, if you're sending home a child with community-acquired pneumonia, why no antibiotics? Your thoughts and help interpret that study for us. It, it does sound provocative now, doesn't it, Bob? Um, so I, I think what that study was, I think that study was an important study, and that was done by one of my mentees, who's now faculty at Cincinnati Children's, Matt Lipshaw. And it really is the first step in trying to understand what population of children we can safely treat without antibiotics. As we talked about earlier, you brought up the EPIC study. The vast majority of detected etiologies, particularly in young children less than five, is viral. And, and that likelihood is even higher if they're well enough to go home. In fact, the 2011 Infectious Diseases Society of America and Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society pneumonia guidelines actually make a strong recommendation that children who are well enough to be managed in the outpatient setting after an appropriate outpatient or ED evaluation should not routinely be treated with antibiotics. The challenge here for all of us, myself included, is that we can identify the small portion of the pie where bacterial disease might be likely. And so I think what this study shows us is that most kids who present who have clinically suspected pneumonia if they're well enough to go home, it's likely that they do not need antibiotics. That study has a host of limitations, like all studies, but I think that, that need to be considered. But I think it's a provocative and important first step for us to be able to identify the group of patients who really we can consider withholding antibiotics from because the antibiotics themselves, we never talk about antibiotics being harmful to patients. And I think that's re in a really important perspective. If we give antibiotics to patients who do not require them, we are introducing potential harm to that patient. We are exposing them to antibiotic-associated side effects, which, by the way, are the leading cause of drug-related adverse events for children presenting to the emergency department. We are changing their gut microbiome to the extent that they are at risk for diseases later on in life, such as asthma and obesity. And we are exposing them to risk of severe complications of pneumonia, such as C. difficile colitis. So I think that, that that's where this, this idea of, oh, I'll just give them antibiotics needs to shift a little. And we need to start thinking about, are we harming patients by giving them antibiotics when they might not need it? Now, the key for this disease process, which is so difficult, is how do we identify that low-risk cohort? And I hope that some of the work that myself and others are doing can lead us to that point so that we can ultimately decrease antibiotic use. If we even did that by 20%, that would be a huge number of antibiotic days when you consider all the children with pneumonia in the United States who receive antibiotics. Great, Todd. That is awesome. And a segue to the next comment I'm going to make. So again, most outpatient pneumonia does not require antibiotics. We still need to tease out those children that do. But let's talk about the subset that are getting treated. Okay, and our first podcast, actually, by the way, Todd, was with Dr. Paul Offit. He wrote a book called Overkill, and he talked about why do we have a set duration for antibiotics? Okay, when a child has asthma, we tell them, take their nebulizer when they're wheezing. When you have a sore knee, take pain medicine when it hurts. When the wheezing stops or the pain gets better, stop the pain medicine, stop the nebulizers. With antibiotics, we like a 10-day course. We like a 14-day course. So there's two recent studies, one international and one based in the United States, 
looking at five days versus 10 days of antibiotic therapy for the outpatient treatment of community-acquired pneumonia. Talk to us about that, Todd. Sure. So this, I, I mean, I think that this concept of all or nothing medicine is one that we've been practicing for, for a while now because we haven't had the tools. And, and I really view this as an opportunity for us as emergency physicians to enter into the precision medicine space and actually, you know, I call it acute care precision medicine, where we can individualize a course of therapy based on an individual's phenotype. And so I think that would be a whole podcast in and of itself, but I think this gets at the idea of not every patient needs 10 days of antibiotics, and not every patient needs five days of antibiotics, and not every patient needs antibiotics. But I think the studies that you're talking about, the SAFER study in Canada, and the soon-to-be-published, I believe, Scout Cap trial in the United States, and then there is the CAPIT study in the United Kingdom, all three of these studies are looking at five versus 10-day courses of antibiotics. I believe the CAPIT study may be looking at three as well. And essentially, what the SAFER study found, published in JAMA Pediatrics earlier this year, and the Scout Cap study, the abstract's been presented, um, is that there's no differences in clinical outcomes, really, between kids who receive five versus 10 days of antibiotics. And, the, you know, and, and there's downsides because the kids who are getting 10 days are receiving double the amount of antibiotic exposure. So I think once these studies are published, I think that, that national guidelines and certainly institutional protocols should seriously consider whether the standard course of antibiotics becomes five days with a reassessment to determine if a prolonged course is, uh, is necessary beyond five days. And then I think that the future is going to be, can we identify patients that don't need antibiotics? Or that need one dose of antibiotics, you know, in the uh, in, you know a parenteral dose of antibiotics in the ED and nothing more, versus three days versus five days, and it might be that in the future that we reach a time where we're able to better personalize our antibiotic prescribing. But for now, I think the Safer study, the CAPIT study, and the Scout Cap study are all a huge step in the right direction to saying maybe we don't need the standard ten day course. Maybe we can get away with five. So I'm very excited about that data. Great. Awesome, Todd. Let's stick to the topic of outpatient pneumonia. And Todd, you, you said I've been, you talked about me practicing for a few decades and my clinical gestalt is good. There's one disease, Todd, that I need a few minutes of your time where it is a true head scratcher. You ready? Myco ready. Mycoplasma pneumonia. So, so I'll give you one thing you already alluded to. School-age children more common than younger children. Okay, I think we're sort of all in agreement there. Talk to us about a few other findings or a few other issues with that. Number one, PCR diagnoses, or is it a clinical diagnosis, or is it an x-ray diagnosis? And once you address that, Todd, my last question is, do macrolide antibiotics improve outcome of mycoplasma pneumonia, or can we put mycoplasma pneumonia in the category of viral, no treatment needed. The floor is yours, Todd. Bob, you like to end with the easy question. Um, mycoplasma is a thorn in pneumonia researcher and clinician sides um, for many reasons. You know, it is an atypical bacterial pathogen that seems to act more like a virus in many ways. In fact, that, you know, that CDC EPIC study that looked at procalcitonin, procalcitonin 
levels are extremely low in kids with mycoplasma, similar to viral illness. And when you start looking at some of the, the RNA um, sequencing studies, mycoplasma looks more, in terms of gene expression, mycoplasma looks more like a virus than it does like a bacteria. So you're absolutely right um, in that presumption. Now, I think, as I alluded to, there have been two systematic reviews to date looking at clinical features. Can we diagnose mycoplasma clinically? And both of those have concluded that no single sign or symptom can reliably be used to diagnose mycoplasma. As a clinician, that's very unsatisfying because how am I supposed to make this diagnosis if I can't rely on any of the clinical signs and symptoms? What I would extrapolate from those systematic reviews are there are some that matter. Chest pain, insidious onset, general malaise, headache, lower grade fever, diffuse findings on um, physical exam. These are things that we can use in an older kid, kiddo, you know, older than five, although we're seeing increased mycoplasma detection in kids younger than five, which is, again, another topic um, of discussion. But generally, kids older than five with those things, you can clinically suspect mycoplasma. In terms of diagnostic testing, you know, I remember the days of cold agglutinins. I think when I was an intern, I did some cold agglutinins. <laughs> we should not be doing cold agglutinins anymore for mycoplasma. I can tell you that. Um, and actually, really, PCR has become now the reference standard for mycoplasma diagnosis, though there are others that are looking at novel diagnostic technologies, um, uh, you know, and, and we'll see what's on the horizon there. But right now, PCR is, the goal, is, is really one of the reference standard, nasopharyngeal swab which is highly sensitive and highly specific. The challenge is it's also very expensive. And so, you know, the question is, are you going to stick a nasal a swab up into someone's nasopharynx and send a PCR of several hundred or several thousand dollars to make a diagnosis of mycoplasma, or, or are you just going to give them the five days of azithromycin, which I'll get to next. And so where I would leave that is, if you are treating a child as an outpatient, who has those, that clinical constellation of symptoms that I just mentioned, it is reasonable to not send a PCR and to treat clinically. No one is going to fault you as a clinician for doing that. If you are admitting a child, they're sick enough to be admitted. At that point, if the hospital has a mycoplasma PCR and mycoplasma is, a, is suspected, I would not use it when there's low pretest probability, but if there's moderate to high pretest probability, I would send the mycoplasma and then stop or never initiate macrolide antibiotics in patients who are negative because I think we can at that point, there's a stewardship angle. And as you know, Bob, macrolides especially are predisposed to causing resistance on mucosal surfaces. So we don't want to use macrolides unnecessarily. So in patients, moderate to high pretest probability, a PCR test is, is worth considering. Now let's talk about treatment. Yes. Uh, there's not a whole lot of great studies out there that are, that have evaluated macrolide treatment for azithromycin. There's been one or two randomized trials that have done, done this and a few observational studies. And my close friend and, and collaborator, Lilian Ambrogio, who's a PhD epidemiologist, uh, at, um, Denver, uh, who works in the sections of hospital medicine and emergency medicine there is actually doing some of this work to try to figure out are, you know, are macrolides necessary in mycoplasma infection? As of now, I think the data would suggest that if there is a very high suspicion for mycoplasma, 
that for outpatients, it is reasonable if they're older, older than five to treat with azithromycin monotherapy. But that is the only situation where we should be using azithromycin monotherapy is older than five, high clinical suspicion for mycoplasma and being treated as an outpatient. Azithromycin monotherapy should not be used in the inpatient setting because the risk of pneumococcus in kids who are sicker is still greater than that of mycoplasma. If you are going to treat an inpatient for mycoplasma, the recommendation is that you treat in combination with a beta-lactam, such as ampicillin, and not azithromycin monotherapy. Great. I think you cleared it up not only for me, but for many of our listeners. We still, of course, want to have good patient satisfaction scores. And of course, that leads to prescribing the uh, azithromycin three days, five days for outpatient pneumonia. Let me just pause and do a brief PSA. The CHOP pathway talks about all the different antibiotics for outpatient and inpatient treatment. So I don't want to sort of waste your time, Todd, when we can refer all our listeners to the CHOP website and the pathway for the treatment of both outpatient and inpatient pneumonia and also complicated pneumonia. Those pneumonias that have effusions, how you diagnose them, the use of ultrasound, and the management. I want to close, Todd, with something, uh, again, you're a very Sounds like you've been very busy the last year or two. Numerous publications, a lot of research. You may not know, but over the last 15 months or so, we had this disease called COVID out there, okay? And COVID uh, can cause respiratory symptoms, pneumonia. Now, while COVID symptoms, especially respiratory symptoms, have been less serious in children, uh, tell us, A, how you approach COVID respiratory symptoms uh, in your ER, in your research over the last year? That's a great question and obviously very timely, Bob. And, and, and I'll put my own um, plug in here for a, a study that I am a co-PI on that is being led by uh, myself, Stephen Friedman and Anna Funk at Alberta and Nate Cooperman at UC Davis uh, through the Pediatric Emergency Research Networks or PERN, which is the global consortium, uh, a network of the major research networks Globally, we have uh, in about 50 emergency departments, we have several thousand children with COVID. And one of the analyses that we are actually in the process of doing right now is to try to understand the differences between kids who present who have pneumonia on radiograph versus those with COVID who do not. And can we figure out how to target our diagnostics and treatments for COVID uh, pneumonia in kids who are SARS-CoV-2 positive? So more to come there. Stay tuned. We hope that we'll have a result in the next year. What I would say is we know that unlike in adults, where pneumonia is a major presenting feature of COVID-19, it is not so in children. The majority of children with SARS-CoV-2 do not present with a pneumonia. If a pneumonia is present on chest radiograph, I would, at this point, my approach has always been to treat it the same way that I would treat community-acquired pneumonia with, with, with very few differences. So if, if I'm seeing a pneumonia on radiograph, if I've got a, a, a high clinical suspicion, regardless of if they're SARS-CoV-2 positive or not, they are still getting beta-lactam therapy as first-line therapy. I am not changing my admissions decisions based on simply the fact that they have pneumonia but most of the kids that I have personally seen with pneumonia and the literature would suggest is that those kids are sicker. And so therefore, if a child has pneumonia, 
you should consider the whole clinical picture and make that disposition decision very carefully, um, knowing that generally these kids that have findings on chest x-ray are presenting with more severe disease overall. Great. And uh, Todd, one last question regarding that. You talked about macrolide therapy. Macrolides have an anti-inflammatory property also. Have you been treating these COVID patients who you're admitting to the hospital with respiratory symptoms with macrolide therapy in addition to the antibiotics that you mentioned just prior? Not routinely, Bob. And that's the, that's the quick answer. And the fact is, is as I, I know that you're aware, there's not a lot of evidence for or against this practice. And so I think it's hard for me to make a definitive statement about this is the evidence-based approach that we should or should not use macrolides. I do not routinely use macrolides. There was recently, I, I haven't read the study, but I read the abstract, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, a really interesting study that looked at a single dose of azithromycin versus standard care in adults and found that there was no difference in the adults that received a single dose of, of azithromycin compared with standard care. But I think I, I don't, we don't have the definitive answer in children, but I would say personally, my personal practice is I do not routinely treat these kids um, with macrolides automatically. Great. Todd, thank you for all the information for dissecting the studies we talked about this last 45 minutes, many of them that you authored. Usually I ask our guests to sort of predict the future. In other words, what's going on in pneumonia research? But I think over the last 45 minutes, you sort of covered that. So is there any other final thoughts that you want to give to our listeners of the podcast, Todd? I, I really appreciate being here, Sarah and Bob. This has been um, a really fun discussion. I love talking about this stuff. This is a disease process that is extremely common, and yet we still have so many things to learn about how to, how to manage these children in the best possible way. And so I think there's a, a lot of room to, to ask and answer these questions. What I would say is, is that the next 10 years of pneumonia research and clinical care are going to be focused on a few key areas. The first, how do we decrease unnecessary antibiotics in kids who, are, who really do not require them? And how do we identify, best identify those children? The second, can we use precision medicine approaches to discover new biomarkers or combinations of biomarkers that will help us to identify those children that do and do not need antibiotics and that do and do, need, do not need hospitalization? My dream, my ideal for, for the management of this disease is an individualized approach where we're able to take a holistic approach to every child that presents to the emergency department that we care for and be able to provide an individualized treatment plan and risk estimate for that child. And I think that for a heterogeneous disease like pneumonia, that has to be the direction that we move. Um, and so... I think that second item of biomarker discovery using these newer technologies is going to be really exciting. And the third area, um, which I think is also clearly, I believe, is super exciting, is about risk stratification and can we accurately assess and predict risk of clinical outcomes in these children? Because without those tools, we cannot optimize the, the care that we provide. So I, I'm really excited for the next 10 years. It's, it's a privilege to be a small part of that journey, um, you know, to, to help these children. And, and I hope that the work that we're doing will ultimately move the needle just a little bit uh, in, the, in the care of these children with pneumonia and other low respiratory tract infections. Todd, you're a very humble physician. I think the work you're doing 
definitely uh, helps children. And on behalf of Sarah and the entire CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine podcast team, I want to thank you for your expertise. As I mentioned, I want to invite you back on an annual basis now uh, to discuss updates. And uh, again, thank you for joining us, Todd. It was unbelievable. Much appreciated. Anytime. I'd be happy to be back. Thanks so much, Bob.